Hey, George. How's everybody? Doing all right? Cool. Happy New Year to you. I'm really excited uh, today to start a new series with you. Um, and it's a series that uh, I feel like I've been pregnant with for many years, and I'm finally giving birth. Uh, and it's nice, because it's not solo, it's with a team, and I'm really excited about that. Um, before we jump into that and introductions and welcomes, uh, let's do a little bit more grounding and centering ourselves on why we're here. And so I'd invite you to close your eyes. I'd invite you to plant both your feet firmly on the ground. We heard that word pause earlier, so I invite you to push pause on your thoughts. Good luck. <laughs> and I invite you to push pause on your to-do list. I invite you to push pause on the myriad of conversations you have going on in your mind and in your soul and in your heart. Creator God, maker of the universe, we pause. And in this pause and in this stillness, we acknowledge that you are God. I pray that you would fill us with your light, that you would fill us with your love, that you would fill us with your creativity, that you would fill us with your peace. Creator God, recalibrate us, realign us, God, that very breath that we pull in is you. You are the sustainer of life. You are the giver of life. You are the author of life. You are as close as our breath. I thank you for life. I thank you for your rhythms. I thank you for your system of shalom. And I'm really sorry that I participate in other things, in other systems. God, may we use our breath, our vitality, our energy to expand your kingdom, to create pockets of shalom wherever we go. And may we come to realize that it's not our breath, it's not our energy, but that you are the source. 
May we be good stewards of every minute, of every action, of every breath. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Amen. Y'all thought we were going to chant, huh? (laughs) Well, you get me for the next three Sundays, so don't even act like it's not coming. (laughs) Uh, Well, welcome to Liminal Church of Ventura. My name is Wayne Randolph, and I am, it's no longer one-fifth, one-eighth, (laughs) one-seventh of the teaching team. Um, I'm also one of your pastors and uh, stoked to be in that role with you guys. Um, Oh, hi online. Welcome to. I also want to start, where's, there he is. Hi, Ben. Thank you for last week. Um, I'm so grateful and thankful to participate in a community that prioritizes contemplation, that prioritizes sitting sitting with what we're learning, allowing it to, I don't know, make its way inside of us before we just get out and start preaching and others and any number of things that we do incorrectly. (laughs) So Ben, thank you. Thank you for the intimate prayer that you shared with us. Um, I hope you guys are all picking up on that here at Liminal. Those of us that stand up front, our, our desire is that you would have intimacy with the Creator. I personally believe that that's what we are designed for. That's a good segue into our our new series. So we're going to be talking about Shalom. Um, Those of you who've been around for a while, uh, if you were with us back in the other building, back with another name, um, I believe the very first time I came as a visitor and spoke to you guys was about this topic of shalom. This topic is uh, one that is, um, it's the one thing I hold on to. I think I've mentioned that before. Uh, The reason I'm still in this game, I'm still even clinging on to the divine, is this concept of shalom. It's so um, radical this concept of shalom, and so impacting in my life uh, that the idealist standing in front of you even went on to um, give the name to my daughter. Her middle name is Shalom. If you know her, you know that she's learning Shalom. (laughs) Why do I like this concept? Why do I love this concept? Um, I'm going to tell you a little story, and it's a story about uh, this dude standing in front of you, and it's uh, about my first job as a professional Christian, my first job that I got paid to do this Christian thing. And it was at uh, the Institute for Outreach Ministries, Mexico Outreach at Azusa Pacific University. Uh, this was a fantastic job. Uh, in fact, quick, I wasn't even going to mention this, but just a quick little uh, fun thing on how I even got the job. Uh, I was recently married, uh, was recently graduated, had, been, um, had a production company and filming documentaries around the world, not making a whole lot of money, but had cool stories, but I want to feed my bride. 
Uh, and so I was like, oh, it's time to get a real job. And I thought, hey, might as well go back to APU to look for work there, because if I got work there, then I can also get a master's for free, which would be cool. So I went there, and the very first office when I walked in was this office called Mexico Outreach. And the reason I went there is because during my time at APU, it was the one office on campus that uh, kind of accepted me as a little bit of a black sheep that I was. So I went in there to say hi to my friends before going to HR, and they were all huddled around a computer talking. And I literally hear this uh, phrase in the midst of it as I'm walking up, huh, I wonder if Wayne would be good at this. <laughs> And I was like, Wayne's right here. <laughs> what are y'all talking about? And it was a position for um, public relations and marketing uh, for the office. Uh, and uh, felt very like the stars were aligning. I don't believe that God is a puppet master. I don't do the whole um, Calvinist thing. Uh, but it was pretty strange divine providence. All that to say, it was a fantastic time of my life, uh, was growing, was getting my ego um, demolished uh, multiple times while being up front and up on stage for their work. Um, and while I was there, um, we got a new boss, and his name was George Bashay. And this was a fantastic man. I, should, I'm not, I don't know why I'm saying was. He is a fantastic man. Sorry, I think he's still with us. George had participated in our outreach programs, our summer camps that we did. Uh, what, if you guys don't know about that, what we did literally was take about 6,000 students from across US and Canada, um, 6,000 at a time, go down into Mexico, and we would do the full-on Christian summer camp stuff. <laughs> uh, as well as during the day, the students would go out and we hooked them up with different ministry sites. And so it was a pretty, pretty cool um, program that we had, and George had participated for a long time as a youth pastor from his church up in Sacramento, and finally sold his house, his, his business that he had, and, and came down to be the director of our office. When he came, he brought a lot of energy and infused a lot of good energy in, into our ministry. And George was notorious, oh, are we on slide three yet, by the way? Go to slide three, please. That would be perfect. George was notorious for, in any conversation, saying, yeah, but it's all about a personal relationship with Jesus. This was like George's go-to phrase. And for a while, I really liked it. For a while, I really liked the simplicity of George's joy. For a while, I really, really, like, it, it made sense what we were doing and what we were facilitating and going down across the border and, and bringing the good news and getting people to have a personal relationship with Jesus. But I felt a contradiction, and I felt uh, disharmony, if you will. I felt dissonance inside of me while I worked there. And while I would travel around to all the ministry sites when we weren't doing camps, and I'd go throughout the year down to Mexico and go sit with the pastors and the communities and, you know, trying to have a mutually designed partnership. <laughs> and something that kept coming up for me was, how good are we doing? Are we doing the best that we can with the resources that we have? 
And I kept thinking about this line that George would say all the time, that it's all about a personal relationship with Jesus. And it started to surface, and I started to have words to understand what it was that I was feeling. Because George, George's zeal and his love for Jesus and his love for you know, the evangelical model, if you will, was really beautiful. But what I came to discover is as a result of being so focused on this personal relationship with Jesus that it comes at the expense of some other things. Things like, um, here's the thoughts I was having. So this office that I worked at, Mexico Outreach, it had been around for 30 plus years at the time. And it's the same model over and over and over and over. Every Thanksgiving, every spring break, every summer, we go down, we put on a camp, we get our kids to rededicate their lives, they go and teach vacation Bible school, and they do carpentry and electricity, which we would never let them do here in the States, (laughs) but they go down there and do it, throw candy at some kids, get some kids to pray a prayer. And then we did it again six months later. And the same kids that were so excited when the Americans showed up, the Mexican kids, the locals, they would dedicate their lives again. They would walk forward again, and they would get candy again. And they would get a little felt cross to take home. And I would get struck with this comment so often from students and from people that I worked with, this takeaway, it was this initial takeaway. And people would say, oh man, I love these trips because it just shows me how lucky I am or how blessed I am because I go down there and I see people and they have nothing yet they're so happy and it really just puts things into perspective for me. And I gotta tell you friends, I'm not okay with that assessment. I should start by saying I participated in that assessment for a little while. But as I begin to build relationship and study culture and sociology, (laughs) I began to see, oh, well, yeah. When a visitor shows up, you smile. You act nice. But when they leave, reality comes back. And what I got to see during those times that we weren't doing camps and I would just go down on my own or with a few friends, what we got to see was the realities of these same kids that we thought were fantastic and all excited to be there. Um, You know, they're eating one meal a day. And their families are trying to figure out, okay, I've got $7 today. With the seven, do I pay for my kids' schooling? Because after fourth grade, you have to pay for it. Do I pay for some schooling this day? My kids also got diarrhea. Should I get some Pepto? We also got to eat. What do we do? And I would hear this phrase, and I would hear George in the background, not this George, but George Bechet, right? And I'd hear this phrase, it's all about a personal relationship with Jesus. And I got to be honest, guys, I was so effing angry, so angry, because I didn't see a personal relationship with Jesus addressing poverty. I didn't see a personal relationship with Jesus changing the, the narco-trafficking going on in their, in their, uh, their home, I'm sorry, in, their, in their, their area. Ejido, that was the word I was looking for, sorry. 
I, I didn't see that good news. And I would find myself wanting to lovingly argue with George, but I was young and my ego was in full, full swing. And so I was good at telling George and others like George why they were wrong. And eventually I had to leave that space because I was loud. And my heart had turned. But around that time, I had a professor who introduced us, introduced me, to this concept of shalom. And it clicked. Go ahead, slide four, please. It clicked. It finally was like, oh, this is why. This is why when George and others like George would say these phrases, it's all about a personal relationship with Jesus, why something in me would be like, yeah, but... There's, there's something good about that, but oh, you guys, there's something like, there's something off with that. And this professor went on to explain that shalom takes into consideration so much more than just me and God. See, what I, what I was having these feelings, these, this dissonance, if you will, and maybe some of you have experienced it. I know that most of us in here have gone through or are going through some sort of deconstruction process, re-examining those things that we were told we should believe, re-examining, reclaiming words and thoughts. <laughs> and see, what I came to understand was an unintentional byproduct of focusing solely on a personal relationship with Jesus is that eventually this thing becomes a program. Eventually, this thing becomes a formula. And eventually, and this is going to sound a little cynical, I apologize, this is my own experience, but these are the conclusions that I came to. Eventually, what I saw is it seemed like we had reduced this Christian thing into pray a prayer. After that prayer, that transaction, you get your ticket, and now you've got your ticket because this whole thing's going to hell and it's no good. And we want to get out of here anyways. And so on that day when the bus shows up and Jesus is at the, uh, the driver's seat, we have our ticket, we show our ticket, we pray the prayer, we're in, bada bing, bada boom, you get your cloud, you get your harp. I think this might have come up in one of our recent sermons or maybe one of the conversations afterwards, but I grew up in an era, maybe some of you as well, um, that we were told, maybe some tongue-in-cheek, that the acronym for the Bible was basic, no, I'm sorry, basic instructions before leaving earth. And you laugh, but man, if you sit in that, if you grow up in that, if that's what you are like permeating in, you begin to believe it. And you begin to believe that it's all about a personal relationship with Jesus. And you begin to believe that your entire life's goal as a Christian should be to use that energy to save souls, to get them out of here before this thing goes to hell in a handbasket. So they too can be on the bus. But something was wrong with that. And I hadn't studied scripture yet, fully. <laughs> 
But I was at APU, and I had some good professors. And like I said, back to this, this professor introduced me to Shalom. This entire series that we are setting up for you for the next, gosh, five months? For the next five months, we are going to be exploring and unpacking this concept of shalom. Guys, we could use five lifetimes, I promise. It's so beautiful, and it's so, I used that term earlier, pregnant. It's so pregnant with goodness and creativity. There's so much more than just focusing on your personal relationship with Jesus. So it's time for us to expand, to evolve, and if I may say it, grow up. With that in mind, before I jump into what, uh, how the professors uh, shared it with us, um, I would like to throw a quick video up for you from the Bible Project, guys. I've said this many times, I'll say it again. Holy crud, when I was a classroom teacher teaching theology and Bible, if I had access to more of these, this three-minute, 45-second video um, would take me about a week with my high schoolers. But um, before we can get into the system of shalom, let's understand just the definition and the word shalom. Here's a quick video, and we'll pick up afterwards. The word peace is common in most languages. People can talk about peace treaties or times of peace. It means the absence of war. And in the Bible, the word peace can refer to the absence of conflict, but it also points to the presence of something better in its place. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And in the New Testament, the Greek word is erene. The most basic meaning of shalom is complete or whole. The word can refer to a stone that has a perfect whole shape with no cracks. It can also refer to a completed stone wall that has no gaps and no missing bricks. Shalom refers to something that's complex with lots of pieces that's in a state of completeness, wholeness. It's like Job who says his tents are in a state of shalom because he counted his flock and no animals are missing. This is why shalom can refer to a person's well-being. Like when David visited his brothers on the battlefield, he asked about their shalom. The core idea is that life is complex, full of moving parts and relationships and situations. And when any of these is out of alignment or missing, your shalom breaks down. Life is no longer whole. It needs to be restored. In fact, that's the basic meaning of shalom when you use it as a verb. To bring shalom literally means to make complete or restore. So Solomon brings shalom to the unfinished temple when he completes it. Or if your animal accidentally damages your neighbor's field, you shalom them by giving them a complete repayment for their loss. You take what's missing and you restore it to wholeness. The same goes for human relationships. In the book of Proverbs, to reconcile and heal a broken relationship is to bring shalom. And when rival kingdoms make shalom in the Bible, it doesn't just mean they stop fighting, it also means they start working together for each other's benefit. This state of shalom is what Israel's kings were supposed to cultivate, and it rarely happened. So the prophet Isaiah, he looked forward to a future king, a prince of shalom, and his reign would bring shalom with no end. A time when God would make a covenant of shalom with his people and make right all wrongs and heal all that's been broken. This is why Jesus' birth in the New Testament was announced as the arrival of Irene. Remember, that's the Greek word for peace. Jesus came to offer his peace to others. Like when he said to his followers, my peace I give to you all. 
The apostles claimed that Jesus made peace between messed up humans and God when he died and rose from the dead. The idea is that he restored to wholeness the broken relationship between humans and their creator. This is why the apostle Paul can say Jesus himself is our Irene. He was the whole complete human that I am made to be but have failed to be. And now he gives me his life as a gift. And this means that Jesus' followers are now called to create peace. Paul instructed local churches to keep their unity through the bond of peace, which requires humility and patience and bearing with others in love. Becoming people of peace means participating in the life of Jesus, who reconciled all things in heaven and on earth, restoring peace through his death and resurrection. So peace takes a lot of work because it's not just the absence of conflict. True peace requires taking what's broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether it's in our lives, our relationships, or in our world. And that's the rich biblical concept of peace. Hey, thanks for watching this work. Right? <laughs> so good. How many of you have seen Bible Project videos before? Um, if you have any desire, any hunger at all for the word, get after their videos. I, I, just a quick plug on, on uh, Dr. Tim Mackey. He is a professor of um, Old Testament Hebrew. Uh, he is a professor of, uh, like he teaches, he's a seminary professor, so he teaches other pastors how to read the word, how to uh, exegete the word. Um, he's fantastic and I would highly recommend uh, their videos. So shalom, this concept, this idea of shalom is much more than just peace. And two things that I want to um, highlight from the video, but man, the again, the entire video, just sit with it, go watch it again. But two things I wanna point out, and then we'll jump into this idea or concept of the system of shalom. I love that idea when it talked about two warring factions Right, And the idea of shalom is not just, hey, we're not killing each other anymore, but we're actually using our energy for the betterment of each other. Bless you. One more time. We're actually using our energy for the betterment of one another. Not just, hey, we'll put a line down and we won't cross it anymore. Right? It's not just the absence of war. The other idea is this concept of whole and complete. That idea of the brick, right? Or like the, the temple wasn't, it didn't have shalom until the final brick was there. Think about that concept when, when New Testament writers are talking about Jesus and he is that final brick creating shalom, right? It's whole and complete again. Well, I studied sociology, right? And, and in sociology, we look at systems. We love systems. <laughs> We like to look at how, how people work, how they work together, what kind of systems do they put together. Is it for the betterment of all? Is it for the betterment of some, but systems in general? And this is how our professor taught shalom to us was as a system. And so I'd like to share that with you. And of course, I didn't make my notes in writing that I could read. So our professor taught us that the system of shalom is a, this is slide six, by the way, please. <laughs> shalom is a flourishing and abundant relationship, not lacking anything. Flourishing, I can't see you guys with reading glasses, holy crud. <laughs> Fl flourishing 
abundant, not lacking anything. And those relationships are with God, with each other, with nature, and with ourselves. George Bechet, as an incredible man as he was, and super intelligent, the guy was an engineer. Oh my gosh, he was so smart. But he was very focused on one area, one aspect of shalom. I don't know, after I left, I didn't stay in touch with George. I hope that after staring at his, you know, it's all about a personal relationship with Jesus, I hope that in seeing that and seeing Jesus and listening to Jesus' teachings that he did expand eventually to see that their shalom, that this gospel, this good news reaches more than just your salvation, reaches more than just your get-out-of-here ticket. You can go to slide seven really quick. Um, something that I think is absolutely incredible about shalom and this concept is that each of those four relationships um, offer us a multi multi-dimensional look at our overall and complete well-being. And so in that relationship uh, with God, that is our spiritual component, with the natural world, our physical with each other, our social, and with ourselves, psychological. The good little sociology students ate this stuff up. <laughs> but, as you guys know, slide eight, please. In the opening narrative, humanity sees autonomy from God, and we created our own systems. We created our systems based off our naive understanding of good and evil, our naive and childish understanding of how the world works. And this, my friends, right in Genesis 3, is where the system of empire comes in. That's in two weeks, by the way. In two Sundays, we'll talk about... <laughs> this concept and trajectory of empire. East of Eden, the, the narrators, the authors, use that term to talk about the tra trajectory of empire. <laughs> Can you go to slide nine, please? Thank you. So as a result of humanity, life and humanity, deciding to seize autonomy from God, the fourfold nature of shalom was broken. The relationship with God shifted from intimacy to fear. This is usually where sermons in Genesis, uh, especially if you're going to do like an altar call at the end, this is usually where we would start our sermons is, is in Genesis 3, is this idea or concept of the fall, Right? So, but before Genesis 3, this concept that I hope you guys are, it's starting to click and you're going to hear it for the next five months, but this idea of the original blessing, God's intention for reality, before the quote-unquote fall, we had intimacy with God. How do we see that? In Genesis 3, 8, they hid when they heard the sound of God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of day. 
How many of you have heard that verse before? It's in Genesis 3. It's, it's right after they eat the fruit and they're all afraid now. You ever stop to just wonder about that scene? Why, why did the authors put that in there, that God was just walking around in the cool of day? What does that inform us about the original blessing? What does that say to us about our intended relationship with the divine? We're meant to walk in the cool of day in his creation, to have intimacy, to be known, to have our souls naked in front of him, in front of each other. But that intimacy once we seized autonomy, was replaced by fear. I love pointing that out to my students, by the way, especially my ninth graders. Like, what? We're made to walk around with God? How many of you still pray, God, if you would just make that light blink, I'd believe in you? <laughs> Probably wouldn't be praying that prayer if y'all were walking next to each other, right? God would be like, you're an idiot. <laughs> I'm right here. Blame and conflict disrupted human relationships. They saw that they were naked. They no longer felt safe with each other. They no longer felt safe with one another. Well, what if your definition of good and evil is, is different than mine? What if your definition of beauty is different? You don't want to see me? I don't want to see you. Ooh. Oh, man. Self-discovery resulted in shame rather than enlightenment. Let me say that again to us. Self-discovery resulted in shame rather than enlightenment. You and I are made in the image of God. The person you hate is made in the image of God. We are image bearers, friends. Image bearers. <laughs> In our shame, we crouch, we hide. Just keep doing that. In our shame, we forget that we are image bearers. In our shame, we forget that we are sons and daughters of God. I want that back. <laughs> and lastly, as a result of all this junk, harmony with the rest of creation was disrupted. The way the text tells us, it says that pain and toil now result where it used to be creativity. If you know in Genesis, as a result, it says, uh, you know, uh, childbirth, childbearing, is now, it's now going to be painful. As a, as a man who can't do that, I'm not going to speak a lot to that. But it also talks about the land, that you're going to toil on the land. And something that I see is two places where seeds are put, where creativity gets to flourish, where God asks us to participate in the very act of creation. Uh, here's another little fun little word thing I used to say with my, my, my students just to get them to click. Creation was created to create. 
Like literally, God, like in that story, God talks about all the seed-bearing plants, tells them to be fruitful and multiply, tells us the same thing. Take this good piece of, of stuff and harness its goodness and take it somewhere. That's our role as image bearers. Harness the goodness. God looked around. Everything he made, it was good. It was good. Everything sacred, friends, by the way. <laughs> That'll get unpacked a lot these five months. If God's making all of it, if Jesus is the blueprint for all of it, it said all things are made through him, then it all has purpose. It all fits. Who in the heck are we to decide and put a line down, this is good, this is bad? This is a country, this is another country. This is a friend, this is a foe. Who the crap do we think we are? <laughs> Sorry. That might have been for me. Again, this is talking about right, the fall. This is, this is where we start our story so often. And if you start your story with a problem, then the goal of your story is to figure out that solution. And if we're starting our problem with Genesis 3, then our solution might end up looking like escapism. Our solution might look like simply praying a prayer, getting a ticket, and getting out of here. But if we started the original blessing, we got some work to do, friends. Because then there's restoration. Then there's all about a personal relationship with Jesus and you, and you, and me, and the world. In fact, uh, in Genesis, in that first, those th first three chapters, and if you look throughout the Torah, uh, the earth, by the way, is supposed to be better off because we're on it. Thank you for laughing. Right? If you know any stories about the Israelites, when they're wandering, the, the land itself is actually personified, and it's groaning and crying and says, God, I don't even want these like yucky people on me. It says the rocks, the land, the, the, the trees are groaning for restoration, to be put back together, to go back to this original plan, shalom. Any idealists in here, by the way? This is it, man. For me, this is it. Like, like I, I keep saying, this is why I'm still in. Because that makes sense. Why would God make this beautiful thing that he calls good and then is like, ah, no, y'all jacked it up, so we're all going to get out of here. He's going to blow this thing up. Read the Bible. Read the first three chapters of Genesis. Read the last three chapters of Revelation. They bookend. It's no longer a city. And I mean, I'm sorry, it's no longer a garden anymore. It's a trajectory. This thing's evolving. It's now a city that comes and dwells with us when those dimensions overlap. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. That's next week. Sorry. <laughs> next week, dimensions. The following week, empire. All right. From Genesis 3, right from that, that fall, from a narrative standpoint, you can go to slide uh, 10, believe. Yeah, cool. From a narrative standpoint, the rest of the Bible, all 66 books, go into two major plot lines. Two, you can just follow them right there. The authors are going to use a phrase, and this is our, our key to understand when we're, talking, when we're talking about the empire narrative line, east of Eden. We go further and further away from the original plan. So it follows two major plot lines, the way of empire or east of Eden or the restoration of the original blessing, a.k.a. the coming kingdom of God. 
you go a little bit further beyond Genesis and you get into uh, Moses talking with the Israelites, his big final like, speech with them is exactly what I'm kind of saying here. There, there's two narratives in front of you. There's life and death. I've laid it before you. Choose life. This path over here, death, it goes this way. A few of you might win. Most of you are going to die. Or choose life. There's this other way. There's this other system that is possible. That's what this series is about. That other system. The system of shalom. The original blessing. So, uh, you can probably go back to slide 11 now. In this series, uh, as a team, collectively, we're going to explore each of the four relationships of shalom. I don't know why I take them off. <laughs> we'll take the opportunity to highlight other worldviews. This is really important to me. This was a really, really important part of this series for me. As a former teacher, uh, I also taught apologetics for a brief stint. And in apologetics, what we did is we took the Christian worldview, uh, we took one Christian worldview, <laughs> and we'd put it on a whiteboard, and it was very sterile and objective, and then we would slap up, I don't know, let's say, I think the last one we did was Mormons. So we'd slap up Mormonism, and we'd put on their worldview, and we would show how we're different, and we would t teach kids verbal chess matches on how to get your opponent into a checkmate, and then maybe they will pray the prayer with you. Again, a little cynical, sorry. Um, but something that really bothered me, <laughs> something that really, really bothered me as well there was, again, this idea in the opening of John that John uh, jumps on, that all things were created through Christ. All things were made through him, for him, by him, according to the text. To me, that's an invitation to look at my brothers and sisters who think differently than me. That's an invitation to be curious. That's an invitation to find out how are they experiencing the Christ who is in all things. Maybe they don't have access to the language I have. Maybe they've come to different conclusions than me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Imagine. So the very first... Uh, relationship that we're going to go into after these first few weeks will be with nature. And when we had our teaching team uh, meeting over this, one of the things I suggested, and we'll, I know Jenny's going to go in her own way, but one of the things I suggested was like, check out our indigenous cultures. Look how fantastic they are at, at recognizing the divine blueprint in nature all around us. Okay, maybe they don't know the salvation story. Maybe, I mean, we're so quick, right? Maybe, maybe not you. <laughs> but the tribe I was brought up in was so quick to want to point and do the yeah, buts, yeah, buts. But I want to know how they're seeing Christ. I want to know how my Muslim brothers are experiencing Christ in relationship. So in this series, we're going to look at all four of the relationships we're going to take a time to look at other worldviews and see maybe what we can glean from them. We're going to take a look historically. How is the church done in this area? Right? Obviously, it won't be an exhaustive list. We only got five months, right? 
How have we done historically? How have other religions done historically in this area? What wisdom can we glean to move forward? Because I firmly believe, friends, that it's not about all about a personal relationship with Jesus. I firmly believe that it's all about the restoration of shalom, which includes hanging out with Jesus, but it also includes a personal relationship with each other. It also includes a good and whole relationship with ourselves. If I was even more transparent, I'd stand up here and start weeping and telling you how bad I desperately want that. That's not even going to come in another week. I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. I think that's probably, probably a good place to stop to let you know where we're going. Uh, next week, we will be looking at this divine blueprint. Uh, the opening of John, it's in Corinthians, but we're going to be looking at this idea of Jesus is the blueprint. If the Christ is the blueprint for all, how does that influence our theology? How does that influence our understanding of shalom? How does that influence my relationship with people who don't think the way that I do? I'm pretty sure the conversation is today. Yeah, cool. Um, we here at Liminal, uh, we do something called the conversation after our sermons, and it's twice a month, I believe. And today is one of those uh, Sundays. If you'd like to sit and talk, ask questions, challenge me, tell me I'm whatever you want to tell me, hopefully I'll take it with humility. And, uh, but we can expand a little bit more. Maybe the conversation goes elsewhere, but uh, it's in the little room out there. And I want to say things like North, Narthex and Fourier, and, but that's the Presbyterian in me. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I hope that you guys are intrigued and that you want to come back and hang out with us. Like I said, I'll do the next two Sundays after this, and then the rest of the team, we're going to be exploring and finding this rhythm and finding restoration in all four of those areas. Thank you for listening to this crazy bearded man. Oh, thanks. Thank you to you. Let's pray real quick. A flourishing and abundant relationship, not lacking anything. God, that's our prayer. I want it. We want it. Do what you got to do. Amen.